Welcome to the Freeman Law Project, a podcast with thought-provoking insights on tax and white-collar matters, the art of trial lawyering, and the most influential legal issues of the day. Brought to you by some of the nation's top legal minds. And now, your host. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Freeman Law Project. I'm your host, Jason Freeman. Along with me is Matthew Roberts. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again, Jason. Absolutely. Well, Matt and I are going to cover our tax court in brief summary today. We'll be discussing several of the cases that were released from the tax court over the last week. And Matt, I think you're going to start us off. We expect this one will be a, we got about three cases, I guess, to cover. Expect that this will be a, a relatively short episode. Um, Matt, you want to take the first one? Sure. <laughs> so the first one is Dewey Duck Nguyen, uh, TC Memo 2020-97. And this one, uh, opinion came out on June 30th. Um, the issue as, essentially was the taxpayer had not filed uh, returns on time, which led to the IRS issuing notices of deficiency and uh, substitute for returns. Um, the taxpayer attempted to try to kind of work with the service and doing an audit reconsideration, but the IRS issued a uh, notice of federal tax lien, which of course, Jason, as you know, gives rise to CDP rights. The taxpayer did, did timely file for a CDP hearing. Um, at the hearing, the taxpayer essentially argued that, hey, I've got these audit reconsideration, um, you know, this pending with the IRS. And for those that aren't familiar with what that is, that, that's essentially a procedure you, you can use with the IRS to, to attempt to correct, um, you know, uh, assessments that have already been made through working with the IRS to try to figure out what the correct number would be. And that's what this taxpayer was attempting to do. Um, what he argued with appeals is give me some time, let the audit reconsideration process work out, um, and, you know, remove the, or, uh, withdraw the lien, um, in light of the audit re reconsideration. Unfortunately for the taxpayer, um, under 6323J, that's the specific provision that permits the IRS to do what's called a lien withdrawal. Um, there are various factors that taxpayers can fit under to, to have it uh, withdrawn, but one of them is not uh, having an audit reconsideration process. So the, the uh, settlement officer asked the taxpayer to at least send in the amended returns. The taxpayer did, but didn't provide any other evidence or anything other than just, hey, the, the numbers are wrong because my amended returns reflect the correct numbers. Um, and as a result of that, the settlement officer issued a notice of determination sustaining the notice of federal tax lien, and the taxpayer went to the tax court challenging those determinations. Now, one of the issues, Jason, I don't think we've talked about in prior podcast is, and as, as the listeners are probably aware, if you receive a notice of deficiency, um, essentially the rules are you're not permitted to necessarily challenge um, what, what the assessment was, if you've had that opportunity to already go to tax court. But there is an exception 
if uh, you did not actually receive the notice of deficiency, which, which is what the taxpayer argued, as is common in these factual determination that the tax court had to have a hearing on this to hear testimony from the taxpayer and the IRS, um, the tax court actually found in the taxpayer's favor in that the notice of deficiency was not received by the taxpayer. So he was allowed to challenge um, the, the assessments that had been made. Unfortunately, there's one step further that you have to go to be able uh, at a CDP hearing to be able to challenge um, an assessment that's already been made. And that is you've got to uh, sufficiently challenge it. What the tax court jurisprudence shows is you've got to show some evidence as to why you, you know, why the numbers that have been assessed against you are incorrect. Um, there's a long line of cases at the tax court and, and in other courts actually that show or that reflect holdings that amended returns in, a, in and of themselves are not evidence. Those are just statements made by the taxpayer saying, hey, the number's wrong, you should accept this. But it's not documentary evidence, it's not substantiation, Jason, that you and me typically think of and the courts think of it the same way. So unfortunately for the taxpayer in this, the tax court uh, ended up finding that the, the taxpayer did not raise the, the liability issue in a su uh, sufficient manner to be able to challenge and the taxpayer lost on that. Well, Matt, take up the next case, the Dennis case. Sure. Um, so this case, <laughs> I, I'll cut, kind of to the chase on it, but it looks to me from reading the background of the case that this taxpayer had effectively just had it with the IRS and had kind of been through a runaround. And it looks like what occurred here was the taxpayer had an installment agreement originally with the IRS on a, on an old debt. And uh, the IRS had taken some collection actions and which they are generally not supposed to do or allowed to do when there's an installment agreement in place and the taxpayer had ultimately filed again what's known as a collection due process hearing uh, to challenge those collection actions. Um, the, the taxpayer, when, when they file a collection due process hearing, they're, they're able to take their, uh, their arguments up the chain, if you will, to IRS appeals and there, the IRS uh, appeals officer or settlement officer, technically here, um, agreed with the taxpayer, agreed that the taxpayer had not defaulted on the installment agreement that was at issue. Uh, but nonetheless, the revenue officer and, and the collection division of the IRS uh, refused to accept that determination and uh, took the position that the taxpayer had indeed defaulted. Um, the taxpayer gets issued a notice of determination on this and, and takes it up to the tax court. Um, and that is where this, this ultimately gets resolved. It looks like in, in the end, once we've gotten up the chain and cooler heads have prevailed, that, that everyone's basically in agreement that the taxpayer was correct here in their position and what really becomes the legal issue in the case is whether or not the taxpayer 
who uh, is going to be eligible to receive fees or an award of fees for the value of their personal time in handling the litigation. Uh, there is a statute, Section 7430, that allows for an award of reasonable costs, which generally will include attorney's costs, where, where there's an administrative or court proceeding against the U.S. and it's brought in connection with uh, determination, collection, or refund of, of tax or, or penalty. Now, taxpayers got to basically meet four elements to, to be entitled to this award. They have to be the prevailing party. They have to have not unreasonably protracted the proceedings. The amount of the costs must be reasonable and they must have exhausted the administrative remedies. There really don't appear to be too many arguments here um, that, you know, the, the taxpayer didn't meet a lot of these elements. Um, they are in agreement the taxpayer was the prevailing party. They didn't unreasonably protract the litigation. The, the costs in and of themselves would appear to be reasonable, but the, the problem the taxpayer runs into is that, you know, the courts have consistently held that pro se taxpayers under section 7430, they, they can't be awarded an amount to reflect the value of their personal time in handling the litigation. Uh, even though, you know, had they paid fees to another party or an attorney to handle the litigation, those fees might have been uh, recoverable. Um, another way of putting this is, you know, that the, the costs that are allowable under Section 7430 uh, don't include lost opportunity costs, um, that, you know, that a taxpayer incurs as a result of having to spend an inordinate amount of their time uh, litigating with the IRS and the tax court. But, you know, this is one of those cases, Matt, where you, you can almost just see and, and knowing what the system is like as, as intimately as you and I do, it's one of those cases where you can just see the taxpayer is probably just fuming and has, has just been through the ringer. Um, but, but at the end of the day, they, they get what they're looking for substantively, but, uh, but no award of fees for the, for the, personal time incurred. <laughs> Jason, that's, all, uh, that's what I was going to mention before you, you even said it. I mean, you know, to some extent, when, uh, when is not always recoverable with monetary damages. Uh, you know, this taxpayer has a decision essentially from the court that, yes, you were the prevailing party. Uh, you just aren't being an award, getting an award under 7430 because of these other technicalities. So, interesting case. Very. Well, I think this this third and last one to me was the most interesting of the bunch from this past week. Um, and I guess, you know, it, it probably goes without saying that anytime we're dealing with a fraud penalty, it's, it's going to have a little bit uh, of a more interesting context and, and background factual story here. But um, this one doesn't appear to disappoint. So our, our taxpayer in this case, Matt, was uh, – was had been indicted years ago, going going back to the uh, 2008 2009 time period. 
And I understand the, the counts involved there involved income tax evasion under Section 7201 on the criminal side. Uh, of course, we're, we're dealing with a tax court case here, which is purely civil cases, no criminal cases. But as you often have, uh, where you have potential, where you have a criminal case on, on one side in a year, you often have a subsequent civil case. And in many of those cases, you have fraud penalties being asserted by the IRS. So the taxpayer was, was indicted, spends some time in, in prison, and is actually, back in 2010, actually visited by the IRS revenue agent in prison who, uh, who comes with greetings bearing a, what's known as a Form 4549, which is really just a summary of, of changes under an audit. And these changes related to the taxpayers' 2000 and 2001 tax years. So apparently, the taxpayer uh, signs the Form 4549, in effect, agreeing to the deficiencies and the penalties that were stated on there, but later uh, uh, said that he wanted to withdraw it and disregard the form, and the IRS. Uh, capitulated to that request and then sent him what is known in the business as a 30-day letter, uh, sent it to him in prison, which basically proposes the changes that will be made, um, but, but doesn't actually have the impact of an agreed assessment. So Matt, the uh, revenue officer's supervisor here signed the 30-day letter. That 30-day letter asserted a fraud penalty under Section 6663 for the year that's really at issue here. It said it was the corrected report at the top of the page and said it was a superseding report. So it, it superseded that, that prior report that the taxpayer had signed. And what ends up really at issue here is another, it's another 6751 case dealing with the question of whether or not the immediate supervisor of the revenue, a, uh, revenue agent had approved the penalty in writing prior to the IRS proposing the penalty, at least the first time it formally did so. So the issue under Section 6751 is, again, whether the IRS agent's immediate supervisor actually signed off in writing, it's got to be in writing, uh, prior to the IRS proposing or formally notifying the taxpayer that they'll be proposing a penalty. And of course, this provision applies in the context of a fraud penalty, which falls under Section 6663 and and is equal to 75% of the unreported, uh, the, the tax mess up, we'll say. So what we're really end up fighting about here is part of this story where the revenue agent had visited the taxpayer while he was in prison and had provided him the audit form and he had signed it. Now, again, he, he contended he was under duress when he signed it and that's why he withdrew the consent. But the, the IRS attorneys, I guess, in their opening statements at trial, 
you know, they contended that the taxpayer had received this form. Uh, I think they, they characterize it as kind of a preliminary form before the formal communication that was contained in the 30-day letter. And they even made the point, you know, petitioner had signed it, agreeing to the fraud penalty for the year at issue. This statement, though, the court picks up on was really an acknowledgement by the IRS or by its attorneys that the form communicated an intention to impose a penalty. And so it was really the operative document or the document that if they were proposing that, it needed to have been authorized in writing before it was provided to the taxpayer. So something of a, a technicality, but look, one, one man's technicalities are another man's rights. And that's kind of what we have, I think, the court and not so many, not those words saying here. What happened here is the IRS attorneys did not offer this form, this initial form, into evidence. And so the tax court ultimately says, look, my, my hands are tied. I don't have a choice because you've not put the evidence before me. And in the context of a fraud penalty, and this is important procedurally, the IRS bears the burden of production, which means that it's the IRS's obligation to produce some evidence, at least some evidence, uh, to demonstrate that this element had been satisfied. It failed to do so here. And again, implicitly admitted that there was a penalty asserted or, or reflected on the initial audit form that was provided to the pr taxpayer prisoner while he was in prison. And because, again, there was no evidence of, of written approval prior to that being provided, what you have here is a taxpayer win and no fraud penalty. And Jason, huge win for the taxpayer. Fraud penalty, 75% of the assessment. So to get out of that on a technicality is a big win. Um, one thing, you know, that, that you and I constantly deal with on these 6751 issues is, and, and we have clients that even ask us, well, how, how are you going to figure out when the penalty was approved in writing by the manager? And, and what we commonly do, Jason, as you know, is we've got a variety of ways to get it, but one of those is a Freedom of Information Act request where we can get the entire taxpayer's administrative file. And, and we've had this in a couple cases, and we've even got it in one right now, where you look at the fall and there's no penalty approval form, which provides a, a lot of evidence to go forward, how you know, strategically to be able to argue that, well, no, y'all didn't comply with this 6751 penalty. The FOIA request is one of those tools in our, you know, in our tool belt, I guess, that we we use pretty frequently. And it it kind of opens up you know, it's like a, a treasure chest. You never know exactly what you're going to find. Um, I can't tell you how many deposition exhibits or, or court exhibits have come from those, you know, from FOIA documents. And it, and it, you know, there's a real art to figuring out how to sift through those and make sense of some of the, some of the IRS coding that you, that you get back in there. And, and um, Jace, I'll just add, it's a real art in even framing the letter to ask to FOIA so that you don't get bounced out on a technicality. I mean, you know, a lot of times we have to be careful in what we're asking for so that they don't come back and say, well, you know, we don't have this because of the way you phrased it. And this has become 
the managerial sign off, which this is again, you know, an issue that really started to evolve and kind of popped on the scene, I guess, several years ago uh, in the, I believe, Second Circuit Chai case and has just, you know, it's one of those that's gone for the taxpayer and it's, it's kind of been across the board and there's been some nuance to the doctrine and holdings, but, you know, pretty much across the board, it's been a taxpayer friendly, you know, rule that's come out. And it's interesting here because, you know, while that just came out recently, Matt, I, I couldn't help but notice we were dealing with, we were dealing with the tax years 2000 and 2001 in this case. So here we are some 20 years later. Rather amazing. Yep. And my understanding is the taxpayer has also filed some, some type of appeal, uh, interlocutory or, or another nature. So, may, you know, I don't know if this will join with, with his appeal or, or where this case will go uh, with, the, with the government, but this is probably on this issue, at least the last we'll hear about him. Interesting case. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for, uh, for joining us again and look forward to next week's Tax Court in Brief. So thank you to everybody for tuning in. This has been another episode of the Freeman Law Project.